Hi, I'm Anna. And I'm Nina. And we are the founders of the Nordic Business Ethics Network. And this is the Ethics Talk podcast. In this podcast, we discuss hot topics relating to business ethics, compliance and corporate conduct. And we believe in a transparent dialogue around the complexities of doing business ethically. And we talk about both difficult dilemmas in the gray zone and best practices to learn from each other and to build more ethical companies and organizations. If you are interested in learning more about ethical business, both from global but also from a local Nordic perspective, this podcast is for you. Welcome to Ethics Talk podcast. My name is Nina Ratsula and I'm here joined by my colleague Anna Romberg. In today's Ethics Talk podcast, we will talk about corporate scandals and unethical business behavior. As a response to global scandals, such as the eye-opening Enron case back in 20 years ago and many more after that, we have seen tightened regulation and increased public attention towards responsible business conduct. But despite more regulation and more efforts put into compliance, scandals still keep happening. Today, we will discuss the important learnings from Enron with a very special guest. Yes, today we truly have a special guest, a person who can speak to this topic based on very personal experience, the former CFO of Enron, Andy Fasto. Andy was the chief financial officer of Enron from 1998 till 2001. And he has in the public eye somewhat been portrayed as one of the main players in the scandal. In 2004, he pled guilty to two counts of securities fraud and was sentenced to six years in federal prison. Since his release, uh, Andy has been a top guest keynote speaker at universities and corporations speaking on corporate culture. Andy, we are so happy to welcome you to this ethics talk. Uh, thank you for having me, Anna and Nina. Um, it's always nice if someone's happy to see me. So thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, we we wish we, we could see you, but we see you virtually. So so this is this is great, and we look forward to this uh, discussion. Um, but before we dive into to these topics, I mean, a few words on Enron. Uh, for me personally. Enron was a huge thing and a case that I, and I think also Nina, I mean, we have both been studying this case from many angles. The whole case led to major reforms within our profession, such as requirement for formalized internal controls and more transparency on management conduct. And even if it happened 20 years ago, we still keep studying and learning from this case. So Andy, Why don't we start with briefly talking about what really happened? Okay, um, great. But before I get going, <clears throat> perhaps I could start out um, with one comment about my role in Enron and how I view my role. And I think that's important if we're going to have a discussion about what really went wrong at Enron and at so many other companies. Um, It's important that your listeners understand that I believe that what I did was wrong. I believe that what I did was unethical and I believe that what I did was illegal. Um, I take full responsibility for what I did. Uh, and in fact, I consider myself the person probably most responsible for Enron's failure. 
So I hope people will keep that in mind as we discuss uh, what went wrong at Enron and how what went wrong at Enron keeps happening again over and over in companies from Enron to the financial crisis to companies today like General Electric. There's a common thread between all of those situations. But as we discuss it, again, please keep in mind that uh, in no way, uh, as, I, as I try to explain it, am I trying to make an excuse for what I did or to blame other people for what I did or to minimize what I did. I believe that what I did was wrong. Uh, I wish I could undo that. I wish I could undo the harm that I did uh, to so many other people. Uh, what I hope to do in this discussion is put you inside of my head when I was CFO of Enron to try to help you understand how I was thinking, how my brain was working, because how my brain was working uh, is the commonality in many of these corporate scandals, hundreds of corporate scandals uh, that we've seen in the past 20 years. Great. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for clarifying that. And I think that's that that's exactly why we wanted to have this discussion with you uh, to to understand how these major, major scandals uh, keep happening. Yeah. So, Andy, uh, it's been commonly said that Enron's implosion was caused by a culture problem, not a compliance problem. Yet the human resource group at Enron, the people charged with managing culture, they thought that everything was fine. Employee surveys showed that Enron's work environment was great and improving, and there were neither, neither objections nor complaints from the employees. And in fact, everyone wanted to uh, work for Enron. The HR uh, won national awards for its employee manual, visions and value statements and training programs. So, Andy, when looking back and, and having this very personal experience, what do you think went wrong? Okay, that's a great question because uh, Enron, in, in most of the academic uh, articles or textbooks, uh, is described as a compliance problem. And um, uh, it's important to make this distinction. Enron was not really a compliance problem. It was a culture problem. And let me explain what I mean by that. Um, when there are corporate scandals, when things tend to go wrong at companies, the natural reaction of people, whether it's regulators or government enforcement agencies or the media, is to immediately think that it was caused by people breaking the rules. And so we focus on compliance. Enron, while I think some rules were broken, and, and I think I broke some rules, the intent was not to break the rules. The intent was, rather than breaking the rules, to exploit the rules, to find ways to use the rules to our advantage. Uh, and when I say advantage, meaning to get to the answer we wanted from a financial reporting standpoint. So uh, it's important to make this distinction between compliance and culture. So in, in virtually every case, for example, uh, or in every case, I always would get approval 
from Enron's accountants, from the outside auditors, from the Enron's attorneys, from the outside attorneys, from the board of directors before doing any of the deals I did. So those were the compliance functions, if you will. And the compliance people signed off on the deal. So technically, what we were trying to do is always technically make the deals correct from a legal standpoint or from a regulatory standpoint. But at the same time, and this is where culture comes into the mix, I was trying to be misleading. So make no mistake about it. I was trying to be misleading. I was trying to make Enron look financially financially healthier than it really was. But at the same time, I was trying to do that without technically breaking the rules. So we have a word for this in, um, in English, in America at least, uh, the word loophole, where you try to find ways to use the rules or to get around the intent of the rules. And this is what I did. Enron had a culture of exploiting the rules. So on the one hand, uh, our uh, compliance people, our human resources people, were telling people, follow the rules. And they defined good culture as following the rules. But at the same time, what we were trying to do is be misleading, which was an ethical problem, uh, a culture problem, if you will. In my mind, the culture, the bad culture at Enron, the culture of being misleading was driven by two things. It was not driven by the HR department. The HR department, as you mentioned, was a great HR department. They, uh, they won national awards for being the best HR department uh, in America. The problem, the first problem was that the top guys, the top people at the company, men and women, uh, were behaving in this uh, manner that was misleading. So I tried to be misleading. The CEO, the chairman of the company, they were doing things and saying things that were misleading. Maybe technically correct, but misleading. When employees see the top people behaving in this manner, they emulate that. Okay? They... Think of it this way. If a young finance executive wanted to someday become CFO of Enron, what was probably in his or her mind was, I have to be more misleading, more creatively misleading than Andy Fastow to be able to get his job. The second problem at Enron was comp the compensation structure. And this is important because this is this problem is, uh, it, it, you can find this in almost every company that's run into similar problems to Enron. People were compensated at Enron for one thing, really, at the end of the day, generating reported earnings. Now, it's important that you focus on that phrase that I used, reported earnings. Reported earnings today, given the way accounting works, is not necessarily the same as economic value or cash. So if you were to be as old as me and be able to think back to the mid-1980s, for example, the way accounting worked was you had uh, 
reported earnings, and reported earnings usually was almost the same as cash earnings at a company. But with the changes in accounting that occurred beginning in the mid-'80s, um, that, that a gap between reported earnings and cash earnings arose. So, for example, if you're wondering what I mean by that, you have accounting conventions or accounting rules like mark-to-market accounting that allow you to recognize earnings today even though the cash from that transaction may not come in for 10 or 20 years. Those types of accounting conventions um, or or, or, uh, uh, that accounting rule leads to incentive for people to find ways to generate reported earnings today, but not necessarily get the cash. And that was a big problem at Enron. So people ask me who's to blame at Enron. And, and you know, the people who worked at Enron were brilliant, hardworking, creative people. They were doing exactly what they were incentivized to do, generate reported earnings. In so doing, they did deals that did not generate cash. And eventually, if the cash doesn't come in, you go bankrupt. Uh, Warren Buffett has a great uh, uh, phrase that he uses to describe this phenomenon. Uh, He says, you can't throw a party with net income, meaning the cash has to eventually show up. And then the problem at Enron, uh, the problem with the uh, major international banks, the problem with General Electric today and hundreds of companies in between is that they were recognizing income, but the cash wasn't coming in. Yeah, that's really fascinating, Andy, how you how you condense the, the cultural flaws into two two items being the dishonesty or, or trying to be misleading. Uh, and then, you know, the compensation structure uh, that was skewed. And um, what's special in this case uh, is, of course, also that there were people who saw this, but nobody raised the flag. And as you said, the board of directors, auditors, lawyers, external advisors, all authorize these transactions. And uh, this story, the Enron story, has many times been referred to the story of the emperor's new clothes. Even if it's so obvious, you just cannot see the issue. So Andy, from, from your point of view, what do you think was the reason that so many was unwilling to speak up and was unwilling to say that the emperor has no clothes? Well, this is this is a great question, and it really um, gets to human nature. Um, I don't think that most people were seeing that the emperor had no clothes. What they were seeing was what their brains wanted them to see. And uh, as humans, we have a little bit of a conceit that we believe that we're very rational, not emotional. We we observe facts and we make uh, smart business decisions based on the facts. But the reality is our brain knows the answers we want. And our brains will find ways uh, to get to the answer we want. 
Um, let me give you an example of uh, when I do uh, uh, talks with companies or students or groups around the world, um, I, I give them uh, this question. And um, it, it's a sports-related question. And I, I say, um, in America, I use American football. But for you, um, I'll use uh, uh, European football, soccer. Or uh, I should, in Norway, use ski jumping because you're the best at that. But I'll use soccer. And I'll ask uh, people in Europe, um, if your country can win the World Cup, would you want them to win the World Cup? And, of course, everyone raises their hand and says yes. And But I'll point out to you, for example, that Norway, though they're great in some Nordic sports, are not uh, you're not a powerhouse in football. Um, and you wouldn't expect to be. You're a relatively smaller country. Um, so that's okay. But I'm sure people would love to win the World Cup if they could. So I say, I say to them, if uh, let's say you have very good trainers on your uh, on the staff of your football team, and they figure out a new exercise regimen for your players, and if they follow that exercise regimen, you'll win the World Cup. Would do you think you should do it? And everyone says yes. I said, well, how about if you had a dietitian, a nutrition expert on your team, and they figured out a new diet that if your players followed that diet, you would win the World Cup. Everyone says, absolutely, we should do it. I said, well, what if you had a doctor on the staff of your football team and he were to invent a new performance enhancing drug? And this drug were not yet on the list of banned substances, meaning it's legal to use a drug, but it is a performance enhancing drug. If everyone on your football team were to take that drug, you would win the World Cup. How many people do you think raise their hand and say to do it? Almost everyone will raise their hands and say to do it. Because what they're thinking is we're just operating within the rules framework that we've been given and we shouldn't be punished for being creative like this. We should be rewarded for being creative like this. What's interesting is that um, their brains do not stop to ask themselves the question, well, what would happen if two years from now this drug were then put on the list of banned substances and everyone found out we used this drug, and they forever called us cheaters, and they banned us from future, future competitions. Our reputation would be destroyed. No one believes, first, no one saw that they were doing something wrong. They saw themselves being creative. And second, people don't believe bad things can happen to them. It always happens to other people. Um, I ask people in California, in the United States, why do you live in California? And they all tell me it's the most beautiful state in the United States. It's the most wonderful place to live. And it is a beautiful place to live. But it also sits on one of the most dangerous earthquake fault lines in the world. 
none of those, and all of the seismologists and geologists tell them it's just a matter of time before you have a devastating earthquake. Why do they live there? They can live anywhere in the country. Because in their brains, they do not see the bad thing happening because the brain doesn't want to see that. Let me give you one example from Enron that fits into this formula, this problem of uh, people, people not seeing the problem. And you describe it as people not wanting to raise their hands and say the emperor has no clothes. I'm changing your question a little bit. I'm saying people are not seeing that the emperor doesn't have any clothes because of the way their brains work. At Enron, we had uh, a very famous deal, or I should say infamous deal, because it was uh, received a lot of publicity as being one of the worst deals we did from an ethical standpoint. And I will tell you that it was one of my deals. And uh, today I'm extremely embarrassed about it. And today I look at it and say, how could I ever have thought that this was acceptable behavior. But I will tell you at the time, putting myself back 20 years, I thought this was brilliant. I wasn't seeing it as a problem. It was a deal called LJM. And it was a deal, in short, that allowed Enron to recognize $400 million of income in the second quarter of 1999. Um, but it was a very complicated, highly structured deal. Um, it had never, a deal like this had never been done before. So the accounting was a little unclear. Uh, but we went to Arthur Anderson, our outside auditors, and they approved the transaction and the lawyers approved the transaction and all the risk management people approved the transaction. But it was really, um, I'll use the word today, to describe it, a sleazy deal. It, it wasn't quite right from, from a practical standpoint but, or from an ethical standpoint, but it was technically right according to the rules. So we took this to the board of directors for approval. And it was very interesting watching the board of directors. And, and of course, this is the group that's supposed to wrestle with these ethical questions. And the discussion was really, uh, to simplify it, it was a question, well, this deal is perfectly legal, and they had the accountants there and the lawyers there to tell them it was legal, but it looks really bad. It doesn't look right. And so they discussed this for hours. It's a classic reputational risk problem. And at one point during the discussion, the chairman of the executive committee of the board of directors turned to Jeff Skilling, who was the CEO at the time, and he said, Jeff, what's our biggest risk here? And Jeff Skilling's response was, Wall Street Journal risk. There's no question that this deal is legal, but if they start writing about this in the Wall Street Journal, it's gonna stink. Those were the words of the CEO. This deal stinks. So the board discussed it for a while longer, and they ultimately reached the conclusion, well, it's legal. We can do it. 
if the Wall Street Journal starts writing about it or if equity analysts start uh, asking us questions about it, we'll bring them down here to Houston. We'll sit them down with the attorneys and with the accountants. They'll see that it's perfectly legal. Problem solved. So they unanimously approve this deal. That was the deal, as it turns out, two years later, that the Wall Street Journal began writing articles about. And there was no opportunity to bring a reporter to Houston. And the reporter would not have cared, if, uh, even if he had heard the attorneys and accountants say it was legal. They, the, he would have just said, but it's not right. That deal is what triggered the investigation by the U.S. government, and that triggered the bankruptcy of Enron. The board actually discussed this. They just didn't see it for what it was. That's the problem, because our brains want to get to the answer. The brains know the an our brains know the answer we want, and our brains find ways to get there, to justify it, to only see what we want to see. The challenge in ethics and governance is not to catch the people who are breaking rules. We have a lot of people that do that already, and they're pretty good at catching people who break rules. The challenge is catching the people who are using the rules to do the wrong thing. Wow, that's a... Uh, uh makes you makes you silent to hear listen to this story thank you andy for for sharing all of this so but really um Enron is almost 20 years from now and uh and and still we have these scandals uh, happening as as said and you you already mentioned some of this but but if we really look at today's world so andy what do you think that that what is the the most important reason why these scandals keep happening? Uh, well, that's a great question. And uh, it's appropriate for um, Nina and Anna for you two to ask this because you focus on the gray zone, the gray area. Most corporations do not focus at all on the gray area. What they focus on is compliance. Um, And they confuse ethics and compliance, or I shouldn't say confuse them. They conflate them. Um, I am invited by many companies to speak uh, uh, at events they hold, they hold, and they often call these events ethics and compliance. They're going to have an ethics and compliance seminar, ethics and compliance week. And one of the first things I do is I ask them, what do you mean by compliance? And everyone says it means making sure that everybody is following the rules, or usually they say making sure that no one is breaking the rules. Correct. And then I say, what do you mean by ethics? And I say, and usually the answer is, well, doing the right thing. But when I press them for what that means, that phrase, doing the right thing means, people have trouble articulating it. And inevitably what they do is they come back to saying, Well, it means following the rules. Ethics and compliance are not the same thing. Um, ethics is not about following the rules. Ethics is about uh, asking the question, even when the rules allow it, is it the right thing to do? Um, and uh, 
when I say right thing to do, I, I don't personally mean necessarily being altruistic or anything like this. After all, companies are there to make money and to grow and to dominate and to be aggressive. Um, I'm not suggesting everyone should be a nonprofit or something like that. But perhaps this example will mean uh, explain what I mean by doing the right thing. When I talk to public companies, uh, boards of directors of public companies, uh, usually the only question they ask before uh, approving a deal or not approving a deal is, is it legal? Are we following the rules? Has everybody signed off on this? But when I talk to the directors of private companies, especially private companies that are owned by families, the question that is asked is fundamentally different. Of course they ask, has everyone signed off on it? But then they ask a second question. And the second question goes something like this. This is my company with my name, my reputation on the side of the building. And I want to leave this company to my grandchildren in 25 years. Is this a deal that's in their best interest? And that's a fundamentally different question. If Enron's board of directors had asked that question about the LJM deal, they would have said, of course we would not do this. This puts my name, my, the rep, my reputation at risk. It puts the long-term uh, viability of the company, meaning it puts my grandchildren at risk. They would have turned down that deal. So they have to start thinking like it's a private company that's owned by them. And until boards start thinking that way, None of the executives will think that way. And until the and if the executives are not thinking that way, all those people who work in the company that are doing deals will not think that way. In my mind, that's the key. Thanks, Andy. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah, and you, you talk a lot about rules versus principles, compliance versus ethics, something that is technically legal. And I myself, I tend to say that uh, when I talk with management teams and boards, that what's legal is not always the right thing to do. And, and as we were discussing, this is what I call the gray zone. Um, but this gray zone, in practice, it can be very difficult for leaders and decision makers to navigate. I mean, there are the time constraints, uh, the financial targets, the pressures, expectations. So how do you think, Andy, we can make room for these discussions? And uh, when something is technically legal, I mean, wh who can make these decisions to go ahead or, or not go ahead? I mean, what's your uh, recommendations to companies on how to navigate this gray zone? Yes. Well, that's a, I'm not sure that anyone, including myself, has one answer that fits every company right now. Um, you know, it's very interesting because even in the Enron situation, the the woman who is called the Enron whistleblower, when she wrote a letter to the chairman of the company, 
in her letter, she even said, you know, all these deals have been approved by the auditors and the attorneys and the board of directors. Um, but that's not going to change how people outside the company see it. Um, so, um, and yet still the board of directors uh, didn't stop and think about it. They, their response to her was, well, we're following the rules. And this is a very tough thing for people to raise their hands and discuss because think about how that conversation would go. Um, if someone were to raise their hand and say, I think uh, I've got a problem with this transaction, the response from his boss or from the CEO of the company is going to be, um, have the attorneys approved it? Well, yes. Have the auditors approved it? Well, yes. Have the risk management people approved it? Well, yes. So what's your problem? Get on board. This is what the company needs to do. It's a very difficult situation because it's almost as if if someone wanted to raise their hand, they're viewed as calling their boss or their superiors an unethical person. So I think this is how I recommend dealing with it. First of all, it shouldn't necessarily be a discussion of ethical versus unethical because the word ethics tends to make people defensive. Because if you begin to discuss ethics, people intuitively start thinking to themselves, is this person suggesting that I'm unethical? And they'll become defensive. Um, so I, it would be better to be discussed in the context of risk. How much risk are we taking? How much reputational risk are we taking? How many other uh, regulatory risk are we taking? Media risk are we taking? Social media risk uh, that we're taking by doing this deal? And people should try to, as best they can, try to quantify the risk component because business people are very good about having discussions when it's in the context of risk analysis. The second thing I would recommend is this. Every, every board of directors should have what I like to call the 10th man, or that's not really a good phrase today, the 10th person. Or, uh, but what I mean by that is one person whose sole job it is, is to disagree. When everyone on the board unanimously agrees to do something, the, per, the, the job of this person is to disagree, even if he actually agrees with the board. He plays what, um, we have a phrase, I don't know if you have a comparable phrase, but in English we say devil's advocate. He takes the opposite position and explains why the assumptions the board is using are wrong, why their reasoning is wrong, why their analysis is wrong. It's his job to be what I like to say, you know, a real jerk. The reason I suggest that a board have a designated jerk is because board members, directors tend to be very collegial, friendly with each other. They don't like to rock the boat. Um, and I understand why that's the case, because they sit on many boards together. They socialize together. Um, often they don't have enough information to feel confident to object. Uh, 
So there are a lot of reasons why directors don't want to object. But if they have someone whose job it is to object, they won't think poorly of that person. They won't ostracize that person because they know that person's just doing what they asked them to do. Play at devil's advocate. So whether that's an actual board member who's tasked with that or whether it's an outside consultancy who attends all the board meetings and is charged with being the devil's advocate, um, you know, that, that could be arranged in many different ways. And the third thing that I recommend to people is this. Every individual at any level should work really hard to find a person who's like a mentor to them, who's a personal sounding board. Um, and once every quarter, you know, set an alarm on your phone to remind you to do this. Once every quarter, sit down with that person. And it should be a person who's totally unaffiliated with your company. Sit down with that person and tell them about the deal or the transaction or the decision that you were part of that made you most uncomfortable. Even if it was totally legal, even if you went along with it, you have to describe that deal to this person. And this is why I suggest that. Um, and, and by the way, this should be a person who'll be totally honest with you. You know, the type of person who'll tell you if you, uh, if they don't like the way you're dressing or you're having a bad hair day or something like that, the, your, your honest friend. And here's why. If you sit down and you try to describe this deal, that you're this questionable deal to the person, if you find yourself sugarcoating the deal, leaving out embarrassing information or trying to make it sound better than it really is, you've got your answer already. If you're not willing to be totally honest about it, then your brain is telling you uh, maybe you may maybe you should question your decision. The second reason, uh, the second reason you should tell this person the deal is because if that person then says to you, you know, that deal sounds a little strange or it sounds a little squirrely or sleazy, listen to that person. Um, because here's the thing, when you're in business making these decisions for yourself, your brain knows the answer it wants. It wants to get that deal done because it's going to get you your bonus. It's going to get you your promotion. It's going to get you the recognition that you want. Your friend's brain has a different objective. It's looking out for your best interest. He, he or she's looking out for your best interest. So his brain will process the same information differently than your brain. The reason I suggest this, and it sounds so simple, but the reason I suggest it is because in all the years I was at Enron, there was only one person who ever told me not to do a deal. Um, it was my wife. And my wife happens to have been a, in a former life a, a banker, and she was brilliant and understand it, extremely complex finance. And I explained why this deal I was doing, and I was so proud of this deal. It solved one of Enron's biggest financial reporting problems. And my wife looked at me, and when I told her the deal, I expected her to throw her arms around me and hug me and tell me what a genius I was and, you know, 
ask me to go out and celebrate. And the exact opposite happened. She looked at me and she said, don't do it. And I was stunned because my brain was telling me this is pure genius. It's the smartest thing that anyone could do. And I asked her why. And she said, because by solving this problem for Enron, you're creating the opportunity for, for the business people to create more problems down the road. And eventually it will become unsustainable. I'm so embarrassed. I'm so embarrassed about so many things about my behavior at Enron. Um, but I'm most embarrassed about this because I didn't listen to the one person who was the most objective about it. And that could have changed history. So I suggest everyone find a person like that. And if it's your spouse, that's best because your spouse is not only looking to protect you, your spouse is looking to protect you and your family and your future. That's a great advice, uh, Andy. And I, I have to say, I fully support your recommendations. Thank you so much for sharing those. Yeah, and I think um, that that uh, compliance professionals, I mean, the, the most important task for compliance professionals, as I see it, is to enable leaders to, to navigate this gray zone. But also, I really like your third recommendation. Um, I mean, in addition to other ones with, with risk and board competence, but relating to this mentorship, because as compliance professionals, I mean, respecting confidentiality and, and so on, I think we need that as well, because compliance professionals, as you said, Andy, they sign off of murky deals. So it's not only the business decision makers, but compliance people, we need to look into the mirror and, and make sure we are not part of the problem. Right. So time for the last questions. So um, uh, typically, Andy, we ask our guests to share a personal story of an ethical dilemma that they have faced. And I think uh, we've now discussed one of the dilemmas that you've had and thank you so much for for having that conversation so maybe we'll just ask you that um, on a personal level uh, from all of this what has happened what was your key learning and and what would you have done differently um, that's uh, a list that's too long to cover in the co in this podcast um, uh, But I I'm guess so embarrassed about about the my actions uh, while I was at Enron. Um, I wish I could uh, somehow undo uh, virtually all of it. But um, uh, you know, I, I'll perhaps I'll, I'll give you a little anecdote. Um, when I joined Enron, Enron was already doing transactions that were uh, very misleading. And I joined Enron. I was a banker before Enron. And when I got there, um, it was very obvious to me that the accounting that they were doing was, um, to be generous, very aggressive. Um, at that point, it was the first month that I was there. And I thought to myself, well, you know, uh, you know this doesn't feel right. I could go back to Chicago and have my job back in the bank. Um, but I chose to do the opposite. I chose to stay um, because I thought that will um, make it easier for me to be successful. Um, 
the fact that uh, they are so aggressive on accounting will make it more likely that the deals that I can do will get done. Um, it was ambition and uh, more than anything else. Uh, but what it what's so embarrassing about it for me was uh, that at the end of the day, while I did things that I believe were um, illegal, um, what's most embarrassing from, and I'm embarrassed about that, what's most embarrassing is this all boils down to a character flaw on my part. Uh, in my gut, in my heart, I understood that what they were doing was questionable. And instead of walking right out the door, uh, I stayed and I made it worse. Um, so the short answer is I should have gone when, uh, when I got that gut instinct. Uh, And then you should have listened to your wife, right? Uh, Well, thank you, Andy, so much for uh, joining this ethics talk and having this very insightful discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. Thank you very much.